All right, folks, what's going on? This is Jake Holfer. This is Land Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. And this week we have one of the legs of the land transaction series that we started back on December 6th. And so if you did not catch any of these, I'm just going to give you a quick, quick synopsis of this. So we broke down an entire land transaction for someone who hasn't done one already, or maybe has done one and wants to learn more about the entire process. So I've reached out to experts for each step along the way and some really good conversations. If you haven't caught them, I encourage you to go back and listen to them. So step zero was the money. So that's basically lining up your financing. We talked to a broker that specializes in um, residential that may have land with it. We talked to a recreational uh, lender as well. That's an expert in that space. We talk about the search for land. That's step one. Step two is check off the boxes. So that means finding a parcel that reaches your needs. Step three is the writing and offer process, which is really important and some great information on that as well. And then now we are uh, getting to the closing table. So this means you sign a contract, everything is rolling, and now it is in the hands of attorneys and also the folks that do the title work. So I went out and reached reached uh, to reach out to a lot of attorneys, honestly, and many of them said no. And so I'm so thankful for Jay Dirks, who took the time to reach out to an attorney near him. And uh, I connected with Will Lee, who is out of Rock Falls, Illinois, and specializes in real estate and has a really impressive resume. If you go to his website, read through his about us page. And uh, this guy's the real deal. So for him to take an hour out of his time and talk all about this, really thankful. And we discuss a variety of things of what does a title search even do? We talk about risk tolerances and where that threshold maybe should be for someone going into a transaction. Where is the fine line of when it is worthwhile to have a lawsuit uh, to resolve an issue that can't be resolved between two parties? And we also talk about easements. So overall, a very jam-packed, informational episode and so that's that's wonderful and i think you guys are going to learn a few things along in this conversation and now for folks who are here for the very first time before i release you into step number four i have to tell you this be sure to head over to the link tree we have a resource sign up encourage you to go over to sign up for that and we're going to be releasing exclusive information that can only be received through the email list so that is wonderful we also have to remind you that the goal of this podcast is to help 100 people buy their first piece of ground whether that is me helping you directly in the state of illinois if that is me connecting you with a pro an expert in your area where you want to buy ground or number three just simply learning something you let me know and i want to add to the spreadsheet and to say hey really appreciate what you do learn this help me buy why and that would be also equally as great so be sure to do that the youtube channel you just go to jake hofer you can find some of these highlights from the podcast in video format on our YouTube channel. That's up and rolling. We have uploads every single Thursday and Saturday, and we're going to be also doing things beyond just the podcast highlights as well. So be sure to go check that out. And second version or second uh, edition of the quote of the week, I'm going to go ahead and roll right into it. Remind me that the most fertile lands were built by the fires of volcanoes. And all I'm going to say is where there's drastic change, it could also cause drastic growth. So we'll leave it at that. Hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Will. Hope you guys have a fantastic week. Until next time, see you. All right, I have Will and uh, coming from your attorney's office here in Illinois. Thank you so much for coming on here and talking about all things land from a perspective of a title agent and an attorney. Because I tell you what, I've asked quite a few attorneys and I got either no reply or like, eh, no, I don't really want to do that. So just first off, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. You got it. You got it. No problem. 
Yeah. So, you know, I did a little bit of homework. You're from the Sauk Valley area. So for someone listening, you know, where is that in Illinois? I would call it kind of Northwest central. Would you agree with that? Not quite all the way up to the, I guess, directly east of the quad cities. Is that the best way to say it? That's right. An hour east of the quad cities, two hours west of Chicago, directly west and east of those. Yeah. And so uh, take a second to kind of introduce yourself and we'll get right into it. Sure. So I'm William Lee. Uh, I'm an attorney. Just I operate a boutique firm that just concentrates in real estate, estate planning, business transactions. Uh, I was licensed licensed in 09, uh, been an associate or partner at a couple firms and opened my own place July of 21. Uh, website leelaw815.com, leelaw815.com. Uh, I can handle transactions mainly in the northern half of Illinois. Uh, I can provide advice uh, from anywhere, but it's Illinois specific. I'm just licensed in Illinois, but there's a lot of things we'll talk about today that are consistent just from a process point of view, mm -hmm. uh, regardless of where you are. And, oh, how's your editing, Jake? Fine? Oh, we'll yeah, it's good. yeah we, we can cut in there. Oh, a lot of times we'll leave it right in there. But, um, well, let me ask you this. So is, do you handle closings in your office and, and prepare everything? Yeah, I prepare everything from due diligence phase through closing, post-closing. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I will issue title commitments uh, myself. I have the ability to do that. A lot of times it's in everyone's interest that it be done through an independent agent. Sure. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point. Um, what are you seeing? How's the velocity of transactions year to date for you in comparison to last year? Um, agent involved sales are on par with last year, way down from 18 and 19. Mm. And then private sales are peaking as well, also on par with 2021. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the biggest shift is happening. Uh, attempts at private sales, at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes it tough as a broker because a lot of these deals right. aren't even going to market and you got a lot of neighbors talking to each other. And uh, that's right. yeah, that's that's very interesting. So this series, this is kind of concluding a, a five-step series that we've been doing here. And this is all about walking through the process of purchase uh, of recreational ground. And so if someone's listening to this, they've, they've picked up step one through four, and now you found a parcel, you have your financing line down, and you're getting ready to ink up a contract. So I know some attorneys are like, don't sign anything before I have a chance to review it. And some, a lot of these contracts have a attorney review period where, you know, you can go through and if you have suggestions, you can go and do that and make those um, amendments. So from your perspective, what do you think is the best approach? Is it to have your attorney look at it first or ink it up and rely on that attorney review time? Typically, that would be on the buyer's side. So an attorney's likely prepared the contract. So reviewing it post-signing is okay for residential. Okay. Commercial, absolutely not. Commercial, we get happy first, then we sign. Okay. And that's, and for most people, the commercial space, it's usually a, like a letter of intent. It's kind of like your official kind of like 
I wouldn't say offer because it's not necessarily an offer, but that's where you kind of find middle ground. Would you agree with that? That's right. Get the letter of intent signed, get the non-disclosure agreement signed so everybody's comfortable with sharing information. And that just creates an open environment to share, learn about the property and get happy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and, and so in terms of uh, recreational land, would you agree Would that fall under the bucket of residential, meaning um, you can sign and rely on that attorney review? Um, you know, I live in a rural community, so recreational land would be, to me, sure. non-farmable bare ground. Mm -hmm. And so as long as you're comfortable with that space of what you're buying, you may be buying a parcel that used to be agricultural ground and taxed as such for several generations of a family. Then once it goes to you, it gets converted to recreational and the property taxes step up dramatically. Uh, you could be part of a CRP program through the USDA. So, you know, it, the sophistication of the buyer is very important. The sophistication of any of my clients is very important. And being honest about that with me is also very important so that I can help address uh, where the knowledge shortfall might be. Mm -hmm. So if, if someone was coming to you to ask for representation as a buyer, you would just, would you ask a, like an exploring question or discovery question of like, well, how many deals have you done? If they say zero, then you know, you really need to break it down. And if they say, well, I've done 40 deals over my lifetime, then you probably get a, to get a more condensed version or I guess, it, can you explain that? Sure. Sure. So I'll dive into their experience and see where they're strong where they're weakest. If I'm dealing with, I would say, you know, barroom legal advice where they're sitting around with their buddies and they're telling sure. them, do this, do that. Yeah. Is that the basis of their knowledge? Is it actual practical experience that's their knowledge or are they formally trained mm -hmm. uh, in one way or the other? And then that will help me decide, do I need to put together a team? Do I need a, a, an accountant involved in this transaction right off the bat? Do I just need to double check with the county collector and make sure the tax situation is what I think it is so I can explain it to them? And I sort of evaluate what parts of the deal they're comfortable with, what mm -hmm. parts they're not, what parts they're sophisticated at, what parts they're not. Because mm -hmm. okay. I, I, So we can collaborate. That's the point. A lot, a lot of times a buyer, especially on commercial, will come in or ag or recreational. Um, it's not their first deal, typically. Um, their input is important. Their practical experience is important to me. Um, you know, personally, I haven't purchased, you know, a lot of recreational parcels. So if they've purchased 40, they absolutely have something to bring to the table on the deal. Mm -hmm. And so that that's just part of the collaboration mm -hmm. um, is talking with them, not at them or down to them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's good advice. Is there something that you see common, uh, a common theme of maybe things that are overlooked in typical contracts of uh, of a Band-Aid that usually needs slapped on or at least something that needs looked at twice across the board? Um, not, not really. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it usually has to do with a lot of the terms are standard and based off 
decades of experience of the local lawyers or real estate agents mm -hmm. that have informed the terms of the contract. So really, it, it just comes to making sure my clients understand what those words mean in the contract um, and explaining, you know, the most frequent in residential um, and lower end commercial deals, the biggest source of misunderstanding is the return of the earnest money. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. A lot of locally, hurt feelings. A lot of hurt feelings. A lot of hurt feelings. <laughs> and uh, it typically will always go back. Mm -hmm. Very rarely does a, a seller get to keep earnest money. Uh, so that, and when they've already spent money on me, because mm -hmm. I cost money whether the deal goes or not. Mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, they've got a fee to pay if the deal falls apart. They want to use the earnest money to pay for that. But that earned money's by contract, it's returned to the buyer. So it's just making sure, again, expectation setting and making sure they know how the deal is going to function on the ground and preparing them for that. Mm -hmm. What would be an example where the earnest money would go back to the seller? Like what if um, what if the buyers just get straight up just get cold feet? They don't have a reason. They're just like, ah, we change our mind. Yeah, that would be if if they did that and admitted that, mm -hmm. that would be one of the situations where the cancellation of the contract would provide for either some compensation to the seller. You know, and the seller gets to choose, do I accept this earnest money or do I go after another remedy? Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes in the contract, it will say, this is all you get. If we walk, all you get is the earnest money. Mm -hmm. So that's that's typically what happens. But usually they don't admit outright, hey, we just have cold feet. Mm -hmm. If they get their lender to issue a uh, revocation of authorization for the loan. Mm. Well, they can't satisfy the finance contingency. They get their earnest money back. That's interesting. Or they make a big deal out of a small issue on an inspection. Mm -hmm. And uh, then they get their earnest money back because there's no agreement locally. If mm -hmm. there's no agreement as to the resolution of issues on inspections, buyer gets the earnest money back. Mm -hmm. So usually it's cloaked in something else. Sure. Other than we just don't want it. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's good insight. And I think uh, there's so, as I'm sure you see, there's a lot of emotion that goes in a transaction. And I think uh, whether it's excitement and then maybe <laughs> sense of fear, and you're getting a mixture of the uh, of a lot of emotions across an entire transaction. I think the earnest money is a very interesting. Um, maybe a pinch point at, at sometimes for, uh, of, right. of a deal. Absolutely and so, right. and so I think, can you explain, you know, okay, so I'm buying a property. I come to you, we have everything signed. What is the purpose of earnest money? Once it's deposited into the, one of the accounts, is that when it is officially, officially under contract or is it officially under contract when you sign it? So the transfer of the earnest monies an act of performance. So, so you wouldn't transfer that earnest money unless you had an agreed deal. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the legal function of the earnest money. 
that the contract signed, the terms are agreed, and someone performs under the contract. Mm -hmm. We allow them to inspect. They transfer earnest money. And then the allegation, it's to protect against allegations of not forming a contract. Mm. That's, that's the purpose of making people perform these acts mm-hmm. is to lock in the deal. Okay. Yeah. I, and I think that's important to illustrate because I think uh, right now with how fast things happen, it always almost feels like a mad dash to get the earnest money, like where it needs to be. So this is a perform like, like you mentioned, like this is rolling. It's not just, you know, inked up contract at this point. So the next level. Yeah. So when uh, they tender the earnest money, the seller's agent accepts the earnest money. Then when that guy, new guy comes in in three days and offers hundred grand more, it's really difficult to say you didn't think you had a contract with the first person. Mm. That's how it functions. Um, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know if everybody agrees with that, right? I just had an agent tell me this week, well, you can get out of any deal. And I'm like, well, <laughs> no. Uh, okay, if your client accepts the risk, mm-hmm. that's that's always the should be the lawyer's position. Mm-hmm. If your client accepts the risk, sure, you can walk away from any deal. Uh, there may be hell to pay for that. But if the client knows about it and accepts it, it's their decision. It's their deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lawyer should take a lot of time to advise their clients mm-hmm. in that situation. Yeah, that, I think that's really important. So we have a contract. We have earnest money deposited. Now, what's kind of next in the process of what someone could expect? Yeah, then you get on your inspections right away. And I order title right away. I don't wait. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of that's a function of my relationship locally with the title company. So to break that into two with the inspections, you start inspecting the property. Usually there's timelines that you have to complete it within so many days mm-hmm. here locally, you tender the report, uh, to the opposing side, negotiate a fix. And if you can't come to an agreed resolution, the deal's off. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we've got that process with inspecting. Uh, The only thing I note on the inspections is if you are selling, you don't don't want to allow every inspection under the sun. And if you do, you don't want to see those reports. Okay. You want to protect your knowledge of the property. None of this addresses a seller actively concealing something Mm -hmm. and not being truthful. You'll never be protected just by being blind to the report if you're lying to people. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you you really don't know something, it's better to keep it that way unless you're going to fix it. Okay? So there's a couple tidbits on inspections. Mm -hmm. Then on the title side, running simultaneously, I order title right away so I can get the beat on anything goofy. Mm -hmm. Uh, I get to, as a, I have a luxury relationship with the local title companies where I do enough business that if I cancel a deal, they don't charge me. That's cool. 
that's not true everywhere. So I understand why some professionals hold off until the deal's further along to order title. But because I have that, I can try and get a beat on private mortgages, municipal liens, stuff that nobody knew about, mm-hmm. um, or the ex-wife still on title, right? Stuff mm-hmm. like that where getting that two weeks before closing versus four Huge. allows to stay on timeline. Exactly. So yeah. there's, there's nothing worse in a scenario like that, where um, this has happened a handful of times where you're getting real close to the, the finish line of, of, or I guess the ideal finish line. And then all of a sudden the title report comes back and there's like, Oh, we gotta, we gotta fix these things before we close. And it's like, well, we're supposed to close in 48 hours and then it gets pushed back. I mean, that in itself is such a luxury that you have that. Yeah, that's huge. And none of the band-aids that happen in that 48 hour scenario, mm-hmm. none of those band-aids are best practice. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are ways to address 90% of the risk in an efficient manner, but there's, there's, you still wouldn't volunteer for that situation mm-hmm. if you had the choice. Sure. Yeah. That, that makes sense. And I know everyone's once again, a lot of emotions, people either want to get the property sold or they want to buy and they want to move in or start whatever they want to do. And we're pushing it back two weeks or whatever it is. The uh, warm and fuzzies of the deal quickly disappear <laughs> for everybody. Um, okay. So we have that lined up. So let's say inspection reports come back. Okay. And I guess for people to, as a seller, how, how do you protect yourself? So like, let's say, let's say radon, for example, they, the buyers are adamant. They want a radon report or inspection and it comes back and, and the sellers are in hindsight, probably shouldn't allowed it or, or B, they have no interest in putting in, um, you know, remediation to get rid of any sort of radon, ele- elevated radon levels. How, what are some best practices or thoughts on protecting yourself as a seller in that scenario? Not that you want someone to go in there and get sick with radon, but I mean, what would you suggest? So radon comes back high, let's say, and like you said, there's no chance they're going to agree to put in the system. Mm-hmm. You, before you get to any of the strategy regarding reports and what you should take possession of and what you shouldn't, what you you should be on notice of, what you want to try to avoid being on notice of, you make the buyer choose. Do you want to blow up this deal over the 1600 bucks or you're going to stay with it? Mm-hmm. Okay. So they say, no, we'll blow it up. Okay. Well, then you go to your seller and say, do you want to blow this up over 1600? And they say, yeah, we'll blow it up. <laughs> and, and then you're sitting there thinking, what's going on? This is, you know, 1% of the purchase price. Mm-hmm. What are we doing? Uh, but okay. Everybody has their own tolerances. They get to decide. And I advocate for my client. So uh, I say, well, cancel it now. Cancel the deal now. Uh, 
don't take possession of the reports and walk. If you take possession of the reports and you don't update your disclosures, I won't be your lawyer. Mm-hmm. So that's an ethical line. Um, I would also have questions about, yeah, you you just don't want to be in bed with somebody like that, mm-hmm. whether that's in the context of a deal or them as your client. Sure. Um, I don't know if I have, I don't have any clients that pay me enough money to finance. <laughs> you had to think about it for a second. <laughs> my reputation. Yeah. <laughs> I got some heavy hitters, so I had yeah, to think yeah. through that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's funny. Um, that's that, for sellers and re, and inspections. It's the knowledge game. Mm-hmm. What do you have knowledge of? And be truthful about it. Mm-hmm. And then. Have you have you avoided knowledge of something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's great advice. I have to ask you, what is the silliest thing that's ever blown up a deal for you in your experience? It could be uh, monetary, is in terms of the smallest amount, or or uh, I don't know. Sometimes personal property gets tied to a real estate transaction, and they're like, no, we're um, not going to leave that TV anymore, and close up the whole deal. Yeah, um, it was hostas. Are you kidding? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so you know, these were cuttings from this lady's grandmother's hostas, mm-hmm. right? Right. That's how that's you'll yeah. see when when plants are important, that's why usually is that right they're family mm-hmm. related. And the buyer wasn't, you know, it was like a midwinter deal, and the buyer wasn't gonna allow them to come back in the spring and dig them up. And so we had to, that was going to blow up the deal. Um, $160,000 house. So blow it up over the hostas. Um, but we got it resolved. We got, and, and then you do that through an agreement. And then yep. you, and so you have to spell out, you know, they'll be there on between these two dates. They'll give notice when they arrive to the property, they'll do this. You literally, every sentence is Mm -hmm. really like a step on the sidewalk Mm -hmm. into the property and out. And um, I get it. I have, you know, I have a couple things at our house that are family related and important. So that's why it didn't catch me off guard. Maybe uh, maybe some other lawyers learned that in law school or something, but I didn't. Uh, so that was just my own personal experience that allowed me to have an insight into where my client was coming from so I could put their feelings on paper, really, mm-hmm. in the form of a post-closing agreement. That's interesting. Yeah, that, yeah that's pretty interesting. Um, okay, so we have we have all that lined up. And then... I have two other notes of what's going on kind of before that pre-closing date. And one of them is the appraisal and the other is a survey. So let's say we've talked, let's talk about surveys. Cause I think that in, in terms of recreational ground, that is a often a very, a very important part one way or another, maybe it's not. So if you have a client coming to you and let's say there was a survey done, there's a survey recorded at the courthouse already. It might be from like 1994, let's say. In that scenario, and there's no boundary disputes at that point either. Would you suggest them to get a survey or what's your position on this? 
Uh, I would want them to walk the property and well, and also tell me if they're uncomfortable walking the property. <laughs> Someone has to walk it to make sure function since that survey matches the survey. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll see ground or parcels with no fences and then either tillable land starts to inch in or the neighbor dropped a shed a little bit over. And so you want to know because you really can't tell if the county GIS, yeah. the satellite yep. imagery, is completely accurate. Um, you can't tell if there was a pre-existing use that pre-existed the survey that, oh, I always let the neighbor farm that part. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, only the very high-end expensive surveys will indicate the stuff you'd really want to know. Mm -hmm. Location of trees, location of tilled fields, locations of fences. Uh, so you have that black and white drawing, and then you've got to overlay that with what's actually going on on the ground. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's do this scenario. Let's say there's a survey done. And um, for a lot of people across the country, let's say it used to be old pasture ground. And so there's fences. And then the, the Let's say the, this is the fence line, and then this is the survey line. And so which do you really own and can use? Is it the old fence that's been there for 200 years? Or is it the survey line that shows, oh, actually, it's, I don't know, five yards to the west? Right. So you, know, have, your, you have your fee ownership, which is just inside the boundaries of the survey. Okay. And then you can have legal ownership, which changes that with your adverse possessions and uh, other court declarations and, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'd ask, I would communicate with the current owner about the relationship with the neighbors, what's going on, what's the understanding. Did you know you don't technically own inside the fence? Um, or did you know your ground went beyond the fence and try and get a handle there to really dig down into what the relationship's gonna be like with the new neighbor? Mm -hmm. um, no contract can fix two people that don't wanna work together. Sure. So I've got to, especially when my client's using the ground practically mm -hmm. to live or to farm or, oh, they're gonna put in um migratory bird habitats on the fence line and you know if 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 they just use the the part they own in fee they don't qualify for the crp program but if they were allowed to use that ground that they sort of adverse possessed mm -hmm. that would qualify them right so i've got to get an idea on uh how much effort is going to be required to accomplish the client's goals? Mm -hmm. If it's just a handshake and a conversation with the neighbor, I understand that doesn't transfer them fee title. And there's some, there's legitimate basis to say, oh no, well, you know, you should represent that client for the closing and file the suit for adverse possession, or you shouldn't be involved at all. 
Um, I'm sure in your law school class, that's accurate. Um, if you present the issues to the client, lay out everything, a lot of times they're going to decide. So, you know, and they'll say things like, wait, so if neighbor Fred agrees, I don't have to spend five grand on that lawsuit. Mm. You say, yeah, if he agrees, you know, it's all good. You don't have it in writing. You may want to document a lease or something for three to 500 bucks. But yeah, you might not, you might not need to go that far because you're, the client's always in search for the biggest bang for the buck. Mm -hmm. You know, will Bill Gates, when he buys his farmland in Idaho for the potatoes, spend the extra on adverse possession? Maybe he's in a different economic situation. That's revenue producing ground. Mm -hmm. Well, that changes. If a farmer tells me, actually, the ground that I should own allows me to plant three more rows of corn that yields this price in 50 year increments, it's this much typically. Oh, it's definitely worth it to, to lock it down. Mm -hmm. Well, that's fine. And the guy buying the 20 acre dirt track for his kids to have fun is going to come to a different conclusion. Sure. Yeah. That's, that's good, good advice there for sure. Um, okay. So what would be another example of someone just buying a piece of ground to, to recreate? Maybe there is mixed use of ag on it. You know, how often do you recommend them to get a survey when, like I said, there's something rec already recorded or there's already fence lines? Any sign that that initial survey is inaccurate, we we have to get it recertified and resurveyed. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times contractually, it'll also call for a survey within 90 days of the contract being signed. Yeah, like if my client insisted on a survey before my involvement when they were doing the contract, initial contract with the realtors, that contract will have a 90-day stipulation. Mm -hmm. um, that seller will provide a survey and it will be dated within a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm pre-contract and they're saying, hey, there's a survey from 94 out there, it looks fine, you know, then I'll just probe, probe their level of comfort or familiarity of what's going on on the property. Mm -hmm. You know, if they say, if they're two states away and say, it seems to overlay on the GIS, uh, fine. I'm like, you know, if you haven't walked it, I'm going to write you an email that says, I recommend you visit the property. If you're going to waive a survey, yeah, you know, I'm going to email you so that we have a mutual understanding mm -hmm. of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, so, I think that, that's good advice. So ultimately when the, when the survey for sure needs to come into play is when the GIS map isn't matching up with maybe what the fence lines are, or there seems to be some sort of discrepancy based off of what the owners think they own and what they really do, or basically when we need more clarity for sure need a survey in your opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it, it's about changing your level of tolerance between depending on what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. When a survey looks off just a little bit, you should have a very low tolerance 
kind of an engineering outlook, right? Mm -hmm. You have this very minute tolerance for stuff like surveys. And then maybe how long you're going to participate in the CRP program is less important. So you have a larger tolerance for variation where, oh, I don't care if we requalify or I, mm-hmm. you know, I do or I don't. I really don't care either way. Um, so that's what you're looking for. Any slight difference between what you're seeing with your eyes or when you're actually at the ground mm-hmm. versus a survey or GIS, you've got to get that ferreted out right away. Mm-hmm. Now, there's no going back. What if, uh, okay, so obviously trying to figure this out pre purchase is obviously best case scenario, but let's say you end up buying it and then you, you never met any of the neighbors before, and all of a sudden you buy it, you didn't get a survey, and then Mr. New Neighbor comes over and says, Well, uh, you know, I know they always used to do this, but there's a discrepancy. So, from a new landowner, what would be the next step? Would it be to contact an attorney, figure out if they have a survey on file, like, do a little bit more due diligence or what would you suggest? Um, it comes back to that. I live in a world of paper hammers. <laughs> I don't, my contracts are only as good as the people that sign them. Mm-hmm. So you need to first develop a relationship. Don't run to the lawyer try and find common ground, try and understand the person you're talking to and what their priorities are to see if there's overlap initially. Mm -hmm. Because to pay me to do that, I start at zero and I have to work my way forward. So if people are looking at a way to minimize expense, then do the legwork, say, Hey, I think we verbally agreed to this. Can we just get it drafted up? That's right. Or if, you know, and he walks over and says, Hey, what the hell are you doing on my farm? Say, Hey, you know, I'm Will, what's your name? Here's what we were planning on doing here. I totally understand this till dirt is your way of feeding your family. And I'm not trying to impose on that. I just am looking at a survey that says I own three rows deep in your field mm-hmm. and I want to figure this out. And if they say go pound sand, you are stuck with one option, mm-hmm. but that's okay. I, I also want to know what you're working with. Hey, I tried to resolve this with this guy and he went off the handle. Mm-hmm. And then I know again, who I'm dealing with, what I'm dealing with, um, so that we can find the quickest route to yes. Mm-hmm. So how many deals, uh, land deals, whether it's straight ag or recreational or mixed use, how many, if you had to put a percentage, how many fresh surveys are uh, provided or executed throughout a purchase per- process? Like 50% of the deals, 40%, 30%, 80 Uh I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> no, straight egg, 80%. Okay. Recreational, like 20. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because, and look at, the right? income, yeah. What, egg is not only buying that field, but they're also making the payments on the, whatever, $600,000 combine and head to mm-hmm. farm that field. Mm-hmm. And then 
Billy and his kids are blowing three grand on an ATV. Yeah. You know, and so that, that I think is why. Sure. I see that, but yeah, that's a, that's typically how it breaks out. Yeah. Well, and even to add another layer of that, you know, 15 to $17,000 an acre of dirt versus four or five. Well, I mean, that's, that in itself is right. uh, fighting for every inch. Um, you know, a little bit more. <laughs> that's right. And if you're blown, if you're, if you're blown 1.4 mil, what's 1200 for the survey? True. Yeah. Really? That starts to the percentage make your due diligence price. really minuscule and makes it make sense. Yeah. You're like, Oh, I just have to spend three grand and I literally address all my risks. Yeah. It's like, yeah. And, but if you're, you know, if I'm representing someone buying a $60,000 house, mm-hmm. you're like, whoa, oh, you know? So yeah, I think scale is very important. Yeah. That, that's a great point. That is a great point. Um, okay. So now let's say, let's say, okay, I bought a new, I'm in the process of buying this new parcel and I went and just got a new survey. And let's just say for example, there was an old one from like, I don't know, an old, old survey. I paid for this brand new one. Should I go to the courthouse and record that new survey or should I keep that to myself in your opinion? The new survey is different. Record. Absolutely. hundred percent. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if it's the exact same thing of what the other one was probably don't need to. And you have this, and, and if you have the skill to judge that or, or your lawyer tells you sure. that it's the same, then yeah. yeah. Okay. Yep. I don't. Okay. Um, how, I mean, as someone that's looking to buy a piece of ground, I mean, and you have, you have these scenarios a lot in rural, rural America where there's maybe everyone thinks it's a recorded easement and it's really not a recorded easement. Do you ever suggest buyers or, or asking their attorney, like, can we just find out before we have a contract, if this really does have an easement or what is, how is the easement recorded and, and what can I do on it? Yeah, that's all. Um, and I would recommend pre-contract. Okay. Post-contract, you start to get people doing the math. They're like, I can tell this buyer doesn't want this easement used for logging. And if he finds out it's used for logging, he's not going to give me my 1.5 mil. Mm-hmm. There's no objective evidence of logging. So I'm going to deny that any logging exists. Mm-hmm. You start to, because the seller's starting to do the math. They already mm-hmm. got the contract. They're supposed to close in 45 days. And uh, humans are humans. You know, they're going to act in their best interest. Um, there's a lot of great, a majority of people are not, you know, sharky and and hiding things and and mm-hmm. uh acting below board but i with ag and scale mm-hmm. it starts people start to act a little different so yeah you have to so you would suggest yeah. to kind of do that due diligence before even drafting up a contract Is that that's right saying? and and we can you know we can draft something with a degree of certainty that makes the seller comfortable mm-hmm. that we will limit our investigations, mm-hmm. but you know, that that's important for a buyer to know what they're buying or to tell me, Hey, I, 
I'm actually an ice cream magnate from Nevada. I've never been to Northwest Illinois. I think it's important that someone goes to the property or, or, or again, just tells me they've never been there. So I can say someone needs to go there, mm -hmm. whether it's me, whether it's your agent, someone needs to go and see what's going on at that property. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that we can ferret all this stuff out. Yeah. That's great advice. And I, so when, let's say, would you have any other words of wisdom on easement? Cause I think people confuse I think, I think there's confusion on easement. And the reason I say that is because I, I deal with it a lot where people ask questions. They're like, well, there's an easement and that means you can't build a house on it. Well, it probably depends on what the easement is. So like, what are some things that you could, this insight you could provide around it? Sure. Um, consistent uses. Okay. If what you want to do is consistent with the use of the easement or the historic use of the easement. Mm -hmm. You, the law will protect you. Mm -hmm. um, you can't obstruct the use of the easement. So whether it's a pipeline below ground, they have to they have to one day dig from above the ground down to that pipeline. So you can't set your house on top of the pipeline. Sure. So because those are inconsistent uses and you'll obstruct the use of the pipeline. Um, if it's not in writing, oh, this is a talk about scope. Mm -hmm. What can this easement be used for? And that's determined by what's in writing or historical use. So what if, what if um, okay, we have, uh, I should have, man, I should have had some examples. We could go over hypothetical sure, properties. Sure. Um, let's say, okay, so there's a, there's a parcel and legal access is from the south. And on the north axis of a county road kind of, you know, bananas around and touches the corner of it. Now, there isn't legal access up there, but the owners for the last 150 years have parked there and used it as access. Is that, you know, can you do that in that scenario? Interesting. So an easement from a public right of way can, can a private user. Well, let's say it's like, let's say it's county and then township owns the ditch or like township owns the cutout and then you drive through the ditch off the road well i mean through the the land bridge over the yeah. ditch yeah into this uh northeast backdoor corner. access to your yeah. house yeah sure um i believe that historic use a prescriptive easement an easement by implication yeah that the county and the townships if they've allowed that use Mm -hmm. I would think it's an established easement. Um, that's why it pays to say something. Yeah. Because all the county would have had to do is send a letter every 19 years saying, you know, do we that. really don't want you to do this. Yeah. And that, and that may inject enough risk into your court case that you decide you don't want to blow the money mm -hmm. on a, uh, you know, a court order establishing mm -hmm. the easement. Okay. Yeah, I, that's interesting because I think I think those things happen a lot more than than probably what people realize, or maybe there's never escalated to the to the point where it becomes you know, I guess more obvious or you see it more often anyhow. Yep, and roads are expensive, so it's a luxury item. So if you can avoid doing it and get the same service, yeah, you're gonna you're not gonna build one. Yeah, 
And so that's where you start. Yeah, you start to see these sort of pattern practice uses. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then here comes the neighborly dispute, or here comes the new buyer with a very low risk tolerance, and all this stuff blows up. Mm-hmm. And they say, wait, that's not really a driveway. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the county could come in and put up a guardrail. Mm. Uh, or they could do a taking, uh, like eminent domain. Mm-hmm. They could, the, the township could pay you to cut you off of that uh, easement if they thought they were going to lose the court case. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think. I think the easement world has a lot to do with pattern and practice. Mm-hmm. Pattern and practice does not involve lawyers. Mm-hmm. It involves non-lawyer neighbors. Mm-hmm. And so no surprise that <laughs> it blows up. <laughs> That's funny. What is, what do you think is a, a proper threshold for risk? Cause I'm like, you know, it's, it's obviously for whatever, but I think there has to be a good balance of not being a complete nervous Nelly, but also not being like, roll the dice, who cares type type buyer. What would you say is a good threshold? Well, good luck getting a lawsuit done in less than 10 grand. Mm -hmm. Okay, so all this, you know, let's sue them over the GFCI outlets. Not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, If you find a lawyer to take that case. Probably not a very good uh, attorney. (laughs) Watch out. Yeah. Because that lawsuit's good for them, not good for the client. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you're, so I'll, so I double that. So I say anything that's less than a $20,000 fix, you're not going to sue over. Sure. You're not going to do it. You, you're not going to wait the two years for the court order or a year and a half, spend the 10 grand over the GFCI outlets. Mm-hmm. It better be big. And so that, that is why it's so important and why the real estate industry focuses pre-closing so heavily. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the closing very much has this feeling of, okay, we're closed. Goodbye. I never want to see you again. From, from the title company, from the real estate agents, from the lawyers. And that's, not because we actually don't want to see you again. It's that this deal was done right if we never hear about it again. That's a good way to say it. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. So yeah, I think there's some good information there on easements and, and risk tolerance. Now, in terms of risk tolerance, what's your opinion on title insurance? Because And I have a, I have a personal interesting kind of uh, experience. I bought a parcel of ground a long, long time ago. It was in a federally protected database that was self self, uh, uh, they put it in there themselves. Okay. And then it it was long gone. So in the title search, I found that on a database and it was, well, yeah, it's there, but it's, you know, no, no clear answer. And then, so we did a title search on it and then obviously title insurance did not, or title search did not show anything, but I was like, okay, well I have title insurance. If something did come up on this, would it be covered? The answer was no. (laughs) And so I, I feel that like all, I don't know, man. I I just don't know about title insurance and how much it really protects. I guess the buyer does it just protect the lender? What insight can you give us? Um, I'm a 
I'm a big fan. Uh, I don't like I I think when I was doing issuing policies heavily, it was maybe ten percent of my gross income. Mm-hmm. Now I don't even know if it'd be measurable because I really maybe one deal a year I'll I'll do a policy on where the setup's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have to have a backstop somewhere. You have to have a safety net somewhere. And the game with title insurance is addressing the exemptions. They'll say, like any insurance policy, we'll cover this, but not this. Mm-hmm. So you really need to concentrate on things that are not covered. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, uh, easements or matters of record that should have been uh, disclosed uh, by investigation of the record or, or some exemption like that. So, so then you just focus in on those and you, you go to your county and you get every layer of mapping imaginable. Um, you talk out issues that you discover with the title company. Like, hey, you didn't mention this on your commitment. Mm-hmm. Why, why not? Um, and you know, insurance companies are still insurance companies, right? And they'll yeah. say, "Oh, well, this is never covered." Yeah. And I say, "Didn't you? Didn't you have an obligation to tell me?" And they'll say, "No." Um. So some, you know, some are very interested. The ones I work with are very interested in doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're mom and pop shops that get by on their reputation locally. Mm-hmm. And that's not always true in every environment. So sure. title insurance is important to have a backstop on certain issues. What what was your issue you said that wasn't disclosed? <laughs> so well so I was going through buying this parcel and there's a there's a mapping company called MapRite. And so it has a bunch of different layers and one of them was federal and state overlay. So it showed, you know, public ground, federally protected ground. And this came up as a, as a name and it had like, it was blah, 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 Hill Prairie. And so I was like, okay, this is kind of strange. So then I went to the IUCN database, typed that in, boom, popped right up. And it didn't, it was on multiple parcels. So this was a, it was over 50 acres, but um, Mm -hmm. it leached onto some neighbors. And then, so I go to my attorney and this is of course, like the week of closing, we still hadn't got title. We still haven't got the title search back, of course, um, because it wasn't done yet. Um, and so, you know, so I'm going through this whole thing and I'm like, you know, I'm not getting an answer from anyone. My attorney's like, well, you know, we can only do so much. And so I went through and I went, I contacted the IUCN. They said, well, this isn't in our database in Washington, DC. I got sent to over England and then they, uh, gave me the whole spiel like, well, it wasn't here at one point, but it's not active. So then I got sent back here and I was like, okay. So then I contacted the federal offices, the Fish and Wildlife Service. They said, well, it was at one point, but it's not anymore from what we see. And what happened was that the, that program was never renewed after 2008. And so it was never removed, but it's gone. So I, it's funny, I went the reverse direction. I started at the highest level and went down and I finally mm-hmm. talked to my county 
and they're like, oh, you need to talk to this lady. And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's no, there's nothing to go with that. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah that, that ended when, he's, when uh, he passed away. And I was like, well, okay, well, that would have saved me about four days of, <laughs> of frantic yeah, searching. Right. But in, right. in the seller attorney and the title company went through and looked at everything. But my bank was like, okay, if there's this new protection on it, like we don't really want to lend on it because we don't know what implications could be on it. I was like, well, I don't really want to buy it if there's a bunch of restrictions I didn't know about. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, right. <laughs> yeah. So the long and short of it is, it turned out well. Well, it's interesting with stuff like that where then, then the uh, the lender will say, we'll get a letter from that agency, mm-hmm. and that'll be good. And you know, before early on, I thought that was absurd. You know, it's, don't you want a quick claim deed or a recorded release on this? Or, you know, if, if you weren't cool before, now you're cool with a letter from a random person you've never met on the right letterhead. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, but then I've come to learn that's because that's important. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if they have the ability, if they hold themselves out as an agent of that agency and make that declaration that it's no longer part of that program, that absolutely is legally influential mm-hmm. to the analysis and the risk calculation again. Yeah. Um, and, and I feel like I have a pretty high risk tolerance, but even at that point, I was like, man, I don't, you know, like, okay, what I have no intention of building a house on this, but as soon as you tell me I can't, I'm a lot less interested because maybe I don't want to, but if I sell it, they may want to, you know, it just hinders the value drastically. Um, but yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So, and it, I did get a couple emails. <laughs> This is not, I got it in writing. Once I got two different people that, that were important to say it, that's when I, I put my guard, guards down. But yeah, you have to look yeah, into and that. that. And look at, look at the setup that you were in. That you're trying to, you're a rational, you know, let's assume you're a rational consumer, okay? And you're mm-hmm. trying to address the most amount of your risk with the least amount of money or, or target spending on risk control that the consumer is put in the position of doing four hour, four days of legwork or paying their lawyer 12 times, yeah. you know, the quote, the initial quote on, you know, being involved in a closing. Yeah. And that reveals the value of collaborations. Yeah. Because if if you could shift three quarters of that cost to you, it'd be a massive savings. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that risk between client and lawyer, when you get those short-term situations, the week of closing, oh uh, yeah, you it's a setup to fail for both. Both the client and the lawyer. And I instantly said, let's extend it two weeks. I'm not doing this. I'm not. That's right. That's exactly. That's right. That's I, I absolutely get happy, then write checks. Yeah. You that's, know, and that's exactly what you did. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. Well, I know you have a hard stop here at once. So I want to be respectful of this. I have some more questions. We're gonna have to have a part two a different time. I really enjoyed right, this conversation. Okay. And uh, it, I know you kind of give your website and information on the front end, but go ahead and give it again here. And, um, you know, so hopefully some people can reach out if they're in Northern Illinois and want to do a closing too. Absolutely. Please. You can find me on the web at leelaw815.com. That's L-E-E-L-A-W. The number is 815.com. My number is 815-716-8381. You can find me on Facebook, 
Uh, no Twitter, or Instagram. Okay, this is a professional <laughs> office. Uh, and again, we're a boutique firm. No general practice. No DUIs. No divorces. Just real estate, estate planning, and business transactions. So I'd be happy to help anybody. Awesome. Well, I certainly appreciate. It. I hope people take you up on that. And uh, I look forward to talking again here soon because. I got some, I got some hard questions for you coming up. All right. All right. All right. All right. There you guys have it. Hope you guys have a great rest of your week. Today opens Illinois turkey season. So I'm going to be around chasing some turkey birds and uh, hopefully the weather cooperates. Looks like the weather is going to be very crappy at this point here on April 7th as I look at it. But anyhow, Real quick, as always, if you guys enjoyed the episode, please sign up for the resources in the link tree. Head over to the YouTube channel, check out those video highlights. And lastly, we have a great, great promotion going on with Exodus. You can trade in a camera, any camera. It could be working, it couldn't be working. Doesn't matter. If it is a trail camera, you can use the code UPGRADE, save $75 off an Exodus render. And you can go head over to the link tree. There is a video that explains this and also a uh, blog that basically walks you out through the entire process. So be sure to take advantage of that. That's gonna be rolling for the entire month of April. Save $75 off with the code UPGRADE. So be sure to take advantage of that. And until next time, see you guys.